Well, welcome everyone. Uh, this will be our first episode of our new year uh, for series two and uh, ideas and lives. We've had uh, some wonderful people uh, that we've interviewed, very interesting people. And it's great to have Chris Farrell here today. Uh, you can watch our interviews on ideasandlives.org. Uh, where we have some other information on the interviewees um, and any of the podcast uh, 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 apps that uh, if you just look under ideas and lives. And so Tzvi Bodhi and I have had a good time uh, doing this and we've learned a lot and uh, we hope you will as well. Uh, we're looking forward to today's interview and Tzvi, my Great partner will introduce today's uh, interviewee. Well, thanks, Bob, and uh, Happy New Year to you. Uh, I hope you can survive the snowstorm, which is supposed to hit Washington, D.C. today. It hit. Usually, it hit. usually it's Minneapolis where Chris is right. that got the snowstorm. Now, uh, uh, Chris is a real special guest because he's usually doing the interviewing. He's He's got a radio uh, spot of his own on Minnesota Public Radio, and uh, he's great. I love listening to him. I love reading his columns. He's got a newspaper column. He's got a Business Week column. He's all over this stuff. Uh, when I say this stuff, I mean economics and finance. And so uh, I look forward to this. Chris, you want to say yeah. hello to everybody? Well, hello to everybody. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Well, and it's fun because, um, you know, I've talked to both of you over the years on different topics, but, you know, finance and I-bonds uh, with USV and, and Bob about uh, apprenticeship programs. And I've learned a lot. Terrific. Okay. Well, now we're going to learn some things about you and we're going to get your ideas and we're going to get the arc of your life how's that <laughs> this is this is your life <laughs> okay. or how did that show with gates what is it roots we don't know your roots so we can't do anything about that uh but what are your roots tell us yeah. that's our first question yeah where did you grow up so uh i grew up in a military and then shipping family so we moved every two years so uh, lived in Guam, lived in Germany, uh, California, Toledo, Ohio. I thought when we lived in Toledo, Ohio, we lived in the heart of the Midwest. Now I live in Minnesota. I realize Toledo, Ohio is part of the East Coast. So I would say <laughs> mostly uh, that New York, Washington corridor, uh, up and down. And where did you get your education? So uh, my undergraduate was at Stanford University. Well, first of all, where, where did you go to high school? So I went to high school in uh, Washington, D.C. at Georgetown Prep, oh, okay. Jesuit school. And then I went to uh, Stanford University undergraduate. And then my master's degree is from the London School of Economics. So, so you yeah. went right from grad school to um, the London School or did you do something in between? So in between was when I graduated, like a lot of people who graduate, don't really know, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I became a merchant seaman and uh, caught my first ship. And well, actually the first ship I caught 
um, which I, it was in the Brooklyn uh, Harbor, and we hit another ship in New York Harbor. So we only made it to Hoboken because there we had to do the repairs. My second ship I caught in Elizabethport, and it was a seven-month European Middle East run. So uh, we would go to Rotterdam, Bremerhaven, uh, um, Algeciras in Spain, Piraeus in Greece, uh, Dubai, Daman, turn around, do the same thing all over again, just again and again. And so I did that on and off for well, what four was, years. What was the purpose of the ship? What was its role? So that ship, the first ship I caught, uh, the one, not the one, the first voyage that I really had, it was uh, a container ship and it was Sealand. And it was the first American container ship to go into Saudi Arabia, Daman, Saudi Arabia. And it was built in 1942 and then went to Taiwan at some point, I believe in the late 60s, early 70s. They cut it in half, they extended it, uh, kept the old boilers. So the boilers were from the 1940s, but they turned it into a container ship. And it was an unusual ship because it was a large crew. It was about 40. And that was a large crew at that time. And it was a, uh, a crew, it, it, it was a hard ship to crew because nobody really wants to do the Middle East in the summer. And uh, <laughs> just, just, just saying. And, um, but you know, it was all kinds of adventures. I learned things. What, what was your know. job? Uh, my initial job, I was a wiper. And so wiper is a very good description. You work in the engine room and you clean the engine room and you clean the bathrooms of the other seamen. And that was my job. And then I did this for four years. So then I passed my Coast Guard exam, became a fireman oil or water tender. And then I became an engine utility, which was the most fun because then you, you carry the cutting torch and uh, the welding gear for the engineers when they were doing their repairs. So that was always something different. Well, one of our earlier guests, Dave Shipler, who's also a journalist, um, told us something I, I, I've known Dave for some years, but was not aware of his Navy service. And he explained how that affected his think, thinking about Russia and journalism and big organizations in general. So uh, how did your experience, if any, uh, affect how you viewed stories or not much? It, no, it affected me a lot and uh, I loved it. And, um, and one of the things that I've learned from it is, you know, things happen, right? So it, it, it's, a fact, it's a factory that's floating. So the first ship I had was container ships. The other ships that I had were all oil tankers. And, you know, people make mistakes. They get drunk for three weeks. I mean, these things happen. And the thing is, people didn't lose their jobs and they were supporting. Now, sometimes they got kicked off the ship and Ooh. the union would protect them, but they'd come back. And so what you would find is that people make mistakes um, and with union support, they would continue to work. They would continue to be productive and, you know, they get past their, their mistakes. And it's one of the things that has always stuck, stuck, uh, struck, stuck with me is that we all make mistakes. What's the system that you're living under? And a lot of them had all worked in factories and they really hated factories. And because factories, there was no independence. At sea, you had some real independence. You had a lot of choice. 
Um, cool. And the other thing is, uh, I really like the people that I work with. They're all they're from all strands of life. Uh, the widowmaker from Vietnam, you know, who would go with the Marine who would go in front of everybody else uh, in order to make sure the path was clear. Uh, and his girlfriend, who was a de devil worshiper. And um, Santana, who was a, a weightlifter, and he had a, a heart on his uh, tattooed on one arm, and he had three women's names on it, and each one had a line through them. Um, <laughs> and you know, he had, he had trouble staying staying together. So, but I mean, they, and people were, came from all parts of uh, the world. And Yemen, uh, one one uh, one person I was. Uh, this is my first voyage, and we're going through um, the Mediterranean. And I've been working, you work all over time, so you work 12 hours a day. And I was done, I was having a cup of coffee in the mess room by myself, and he came in, and um, he didn't like me because I was college educated, and he had a bias against me. And he said, Come with me. And so we walk up to the front of the ship, go to the bow. And I figure I'm probably going to die, but you can't show any fear because if you show fear, you're in trouble. And we get to the bow and he says, lean over and look down there. I figure I am going to die. Okay, I'm going to lean over, look down there. And there was a school of dolphins playing in the phosphorus of the, way, of, of the bow. And they were surfing on the, the way, on the way that was created by the bow and they glowed green. And we just sort of sat there. We just uh, stood there. I mean, and we just looked at it. And then we talked. And he says, you know, I like you. You do a good job cleaning the bathrooms. Wow. <laughs> and what we made you from then on. What must have made your day? <laughs> it it made years. It made years of my life. Yes. Wow. What made you think he didn't like you? Oh, it was very clear. You know, he didn't do anything terrible, but he's just very, very cold. And he, so he had worked for five years going to sea to move his parents from Flatbush to Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And then he, then the uh, white liberals, college educated people, you know, built some projects nearby that he was really upset about. And he blamed me for that. That was my fault. <laughs> And, but after that, we had very good conversations. We would talk, we had, a, you know, but you know, people have. One, one, one question I have, I mean, it's related to my own interests, but is the uh, idea of skill and how um, very often people who aren't aware of what's involved in a lot of jobs, see them as unskilled. Uh, but when you get closer to them, uh, you find out that they, have a lot more skill than you expected. I don't know whether that was true. Oh, absolutely true. It's really important. I mean, this word unskilled, I hate. Um, yeah. And uh, so one, you're absolutely right. But the other thing is the, the union with industry in Piney Point, Maryland, uh, I was a member of the International Seafarers Union, had a school. And so, you know, people would get off the ship and they'd go to the school and they'd advance their skills. And they would continue to train. But so the notion of the unskilled labor is really troublesome. Yeah. But then also there were very clear opportunities and it didn't cost them anything 
and they would, you know, go in and you wouldn't go for very long. You're getting a certificate. Yeah. And a lot of it also was about language because English is the language of the sea and also the language of passing the exams and, and advancing. So yes, I did take away that this, I hate this term unskilled. Um, I think it really biases people in certain ways. You can see it a lot where I, I read about all the time people talk about, well, you know, uh, home health care aides, you know, they're unskilled labor. And you kind of go, really? I mean, seriously, do you know what- Have you ever mean? tried it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not unskilled labor. This is just low paid labor. It's not that they're what it is. You're absolutely right. Now, are you still in touch with any of your uh, colleagues from those days? No. No. And, and uh, wow, that's amazing. So how did you get out of it? Well, so I said so for four years, and what I would do is back then, if you remember, this were hard, those were hard times. This was back in the, the late 70s, uh, early 1980s, mostly the late 70s. Um, and so when I'd go to sea, I would save everything that I made. And then I'd get a job ashore. I um, was an assistant for a professor at Stanford or when I was ashore, worked uh, in restaurants, that kind of thing. And I would spend everything that I would make. So at the end of four years, because you work seven days a week, the salary wasn't very high, but you're always working. And um, the other thing, just decide you'll like this V. So you get paid in cash. So you've been working all this time and they handle you a, a bundle of cash in an envelope. <laughs> because, and it's an old law because um, it's ordered, it, because that at the end of the voyage, you actually have some money. Because it used sure. to be, you get off that you'd be in, in, indebted and then you would just never have any money. Right. But you're, you know, you're in the Brooklyn Piers, you're walking off with uh, several thousand dollars in cash and you could see two sets of cabs go. One set of cabs were going to the bank or savings and loan. And one set of cabs were going to the bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so I worked for four years. I took my savings and uh, a friend, two friends were going to uh, one. She had a uh, fellowship to work in, um, in London in, in the British hospital system. And then uh, my other friend had a rotary scholarship to go to London School of Economics. So I decided to go to London School of Economics with them for a year. It was a one year's master's program. Ooh. And then what? So I, that was partially, you know, do I want to become an academic? And that was, and I decided I didn't and decided what I really wanted to do was become a journalist. And I'd never written, uh, didn't do the school newspaper, didn't do anything. So um, I got to New York and uh, there was a group called uh, publication called Boardroom Reports. And if you're trying to break into journalism, it was really good because they paid you within two to three weeks for every article you did. And then I pounded the payment and it took me a year to get a job working odd jobs and just things. And I remember six months in, I was about ready to give up. And I got an interview with James Chase, who was a famous, well-known editor of Foreign Affairs and he called me in his office he lay down on this leather couch. I was sitting in this leather chair. And he said, tell me, what are you trying to do? And we talked. And they said, well, I don't have a job for you. He says, I don't even have a recommendation for you. But don't give up because you're going to get a job. I know you are. And, you know, <laughs> that one moment that he took, that half hour out of his life, gave me enough energy to go another six months. 
And then I got a job at this new uh, at this newsletter. And then, but right away, like moments after that, uh, I got a job at a place called Business Times, which was really the first uh, television business show. And this is the only time I've ever had stock options. A lot of stock options. It was set up uh, Silicon Valley model. And the entrepreneur who founded it, traveling around the country said, well, you know, the sports section and the business section are always the same section of the newspaper in most places of the country. So we went to this place called, there was something in Connecticut, it was called ESPN. And uh, <laughs> they were running Australian football in the morning. And so he said, look, give me two hours, one hour show and we'll repeat it for the second hour. And they said, fine, that sounds great. And it only lasted for about two and a half years. Um, but that's, a while. Did, I mean, that's two seasons. It's two seasons. Television. And it was great. And he hired a bunch of people from The Economist and Newsweek. So very few people actually had uh, television backgrounds. And when it went under, uh, Bill Woolman, who had uh, been at Business Week, went back to Business Week and he took me with him. Uh, that's basically how I got a job. So it was about now. How did you get into business journalism? That, I mean, that wasn't that was business and economics. Yes. Yep. Because you went beginning. to the London School of Economics, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I, I was I was interested in it, and uh, so and wanted to learn more. And, you know, we'd come off the inflationary 1970s. We were still in the inflationary 1970s and early 1980s. And yeah, that's um, when Volcker put on the brakes. Yeah. So I just wanted to understand it better. What was going yeah. on? Yeah. Well, if you and understood did you do a lot of, Did you do a lot of interviewing of, of actual business people or what were some of the things in that show that... So for that show, I covered the markets. So a lot of it was more, um, more the Wall Streeters um, than, than business people because um, that, that, that's what they hired me to do. And then, um, I don't know if you know Consuela Mack. She was one. Oh, of yeah. 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 So Consuela was one of the hosts. And uh, she was, she was a, a wonderful mentor to me. Uh, at that time, she really she still got a show, me. right? Yes, she's great. She's wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, I listen to her every now and then. She is a good interviewer and she gets good people. Uh, now, you started writing books. When did, when did your first book come out? So the first, so, well, let's, let's go back and see how you conceptualize doing the book. Well, it was actually very simple. So after I was at Business Week, and then uh, I had this public radio show, I worked at Business Week Monday through Friday, and then on Saturday I worked for a personal finance show called Sound Money, which is produced by Minnesota Public Radio, but nationally syndicated. Then I decided I wanted to do more radio. I moved to Minnesota, did more radio, continued to write for Business Week, but I got a public television show called Right on the Money. And that lasted for five years on personal finances. So the first book was just really off the public television show, right on the money. And so it just covered the basics of personal finance. And it's called right on the money, right on the money. Yeah. And uh, how well, how did it do? Eh, it did. Okay. It didn't do that well. 
Um, you didn't have enough how to get rich quick, I guess. I get. I didn't have. I never wrote, managed to write that book yet, and uh, <laughs> didn't haven't haven't done too well in that. Now that one did. That one did okay. The one that did uh, the worst that I've read. So I've written five books. So the one that did the worst was the one about um, uh, what happens when prices falls fall, and it was about deflation and the prospects for deflation, and. It turns out that the basic arguments, and both of you would appreciate, the basic arguments held up pretty well, but it came out right when inflation started to pick up again uh, in, in the early 2000s. So it was kind of like it hit, it was being sold. Bad timing, bad, bad timing. Time, bad timing, but the book well, what about, pretty well. Did, did, it, did it deal with Japan at all? Where are they? Yeah, yeah, it had Japan. And uh, and what I argued, and you know, which is that that changes in the global economy were putting downward pressure on prices, and that uh, deflation was not necessarily a bad thing, um, but you needed to run your economy a lot hot, hotter if you're going to have these deflationary uh, forces. Impulses, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we look at um, uh, the price in up until recently anyway, uh, the price indices for tradables uh, has been uh, quite flat relative to other prices. So uh, the, the thrust of the argument still so. held at least until we started putting in all these tariffs and <laughs> supply exactly. uh, yeah. strategies of very, you know. And, uh, and had a pandemic. And, and yeah. had a pandemic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, forced uh, closures of production. So, what was your most successful book on retirement? Uh, uh, so that which came out in twenty, that was twenty fourteen, and that one, uh, you know, that one got reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, and uh, that I, there was a lot of conferences, good decent sales, but mostly it really grabbed a lot of it did grab a lot of attention. And, um, what, and that and was a did, fun one. The, what was did, the main argument of that book? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. So the main argument of that book is, you know, if you look at the two strands of my career, one is personal finance. And if you think about personal finance over the past 25 so years, um, a lot has been about retirement and how baby boomers haven't saved enough for retirement. Retirement is going to be really bad. And then you think about economics, one of the themes of economics has been the demographics of aging and how the underlying dynamism of the US economy was going to really be eroded by too many um, young people having to support too many dependent elderly. Right. And those you know, two very strong arguments. And I just had one of those, I don't quite buy this. Nothing more sophisticated than that. It was sort of like, I don't buy it. And then I started looking around and there was all this really interesting research all over, a lot of it out of Europe, but a lot of here in the US um, that sort of had very different economics, very different arguments, but it hadn't been gathered together in one place. And so that's what I ended up doing. And it was a lot of fun. Now those arguments are much more uh, well-known and there's a lot more being written about it, but um, so the, the the alternative argument is that older people work more and uh, older people work younger people take longer to get into things. What what? So the core of the, the core of the argument is that um, you 
over a lifetime, you gain all this skill, all this knowledge, all this experience. And why at some arbitrary age do all of a sudden the notion of a good life is that you're going to walk away from it. Right. And that many people don't want to do that. Uh, on the other hand, we also have a retirement savings system that has so many holes in it that actually many people can't afford to walk away either. And then if you look at the numbers, I mean, a majority of people who quote unquote retire actually have some kind of income producing work on the side that they're doing, some sort of part-time work, some sort of bridge job. And so it's trying to look at the increases in life expectancy. Now, I know that we've had some, some problems recently, but over a period of yeah, time, over a long time, you know, increases in life expectancy, we're, uh, we're better educated than before, we're healthier than previous generations. Uh, and uh, in, in, in one of the distinct look at education, education is a divide, but the divide is like actually skill. Because you, um, if you think about uh, machinists, and I went down to this nonprofit organization that uh, teaches younger people to become machinists. And all the instructors were in their 70s and 80s. Now, the reason why all the instructors were in their 70s and 80s, this is just a few years ago, is, there, is that they were making so much money uh, doing the jobs that all their instructors in their 60s left. They went back to work. And right. they were doing, you know, but they're skilled. They're, they're artisans. They're craft people. And there's so many trades that are out there where there is real skill and there's a real artistry there. And yeah, you may not want to be uh, continuing to do some of the hard physical labor, but uh, as one um, instructor told me, you know, some of the best estimators on a project are former electricians. And so, and that's not as hard a job to be doing as you, know, you may not want to be climbing a ladder anymore and putting your, you know, and doing stuff over your head. So, uh, I still think there's, um, and part of it also is there's a wonderful book by Studs Terkel called Working from yeah. the mid-1970s. Yes. And in the introduction, he says, look, he was trying to summarize what he learned. He said, look, here's the thing. Everybody needs their daily bread, but everybody also wants respect. They want to feel like they're part of a community. They want to feel like they belong. And it's those two things that matter. And a lot of times we people focus on one, the importance of income, or they focus on the other. But for most people, it's both. Well, that's that's one of the reasons why, as Svi knows and you know, <laughs> I'm such an evangelist for apprenticeship. And uh, when when you complete an apprenticeship, very often there's a graduation ceremony. There's a uh, but even even without that. Um, the sense of mastery of a, of a skill that your neighbor down the street doesn't know anything about, however many degrees he or she had, um, is is a feel gives you a feeling of pride and a feeling of being part of what. Yeah, what but we, the but the point. Bob, what we is, call a community. Let me just finish. What we call a community of practice. Yeah, you're part of a, a community of practice in that field. Sorry, three. Yeah. So my my question for you is. When do you plan to quit your profession? <laughs> okay, certainly I don't, and I know you don't. <laughs> and we're never too old to learn new tricks. Look, that's the thing. We're interviewing Chris Farrell, 
And this is going to be posted on the internet. And these interviews will probably outlast us. Well, at least I like to think they will. I think I think this interview will inspire all of the people yeah, who exactly. exactly thinking they can they can continue to to do productive and, things. And often this Go ahead. Things, and you probably know about this, but um, New Zealand lifted the any age restrictions on apprenticeship programs. And so there hasn't been a like a wave, but there's actually a significant number of people around age 50, a little bit over, who have joined the apprenticeship programs. They get the exact same treatment, benefits, everything. And so, I mean, I think this apprenticeship can make a lot of sense no matter what age. At every age, at every age, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, you have no plans to quit your profession either, right? No, not at all. I mean, look, you know, I mean, we are lucky because That's we get, we get yeah. our pleasure out of our work. I mean, is is our work leisure, pleasure, work? I mean, depending on what we're doing, what editor we're dealing with, what the deadline is, we can put the emphasis on different places. But the fact well, of the matter is we enjoy it. Yep. That's exactly right. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. And retirement has to be redefined as liberation you know when you have enough money to say i'm not going to do anything i don't want to do <laughs> except for the family tell us, let's, let's get back to the business reporting and uh yeah so as you move from um your early career and especially covering wall street uh in those markets as you say um did you then sort of branch out and sort of interview more, I guess they call it Main Street, but people in, in more regular businesses. And how did that emerge? Well, one of the things that emerged, and it comes actually, a lot of it actually comes through the unretirement work, which mm. is um, if, if, if basically uh, more than a quarter of all new businesses are being formed by people uh, in the 54 to six, the 55 to 64 year old age group. Really? That's and in 1997, it was about 14%. And it continues to grow. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Now, these, a lot of times what this is, it's self-employment, solopreneur, maybe you work with a couple. It's like the two of you working together, you know, to do this, do, to do yeah. this Zoom, right? You feed off each other. There's really a good thing there. Um, you have all this skill, you have all this knowledge. You're not going to get through the algorithms. You're just not. And you and you know that. But you have all the skill. You have all this knowledge. And in fact, you probably go back to your former employer and they're going to pay you more to hire you to actually do the job you were doing before. Um, and typically with self-employment, this sort of solopreneurship, some of the entrepreneurship that's going on, you're going to get actually paid less than you did when you were having a full-time job. But you also are the boss. And you have a little more flexibility. And it seems to be something that's feeding off each other. And this is one of the real benefits of technology. It doesn't cost that much to start your office. And your office is probably a home. If, if the pandemic fades, you'll go back to a co-sharing workspace maybe, which are not that expensive. Um, but this is, that's how a lot of it that I got into. And now a lot of the work that I'm doing is interviewing um, people who live on low and unstable incomes who are starting a business. And this starting a business, it's not about 
angel investors or venture capital. There's those, and, and the notion of turning to family and friends for money. I mean, that's not, that's, what, that's not what's happening here, but it's to feed your family. But what's really striking is that in every single case at the same time, this is to feed your family and there are barriers to actually doing some of the things you might want to be doing otherwise. There's still this desire to do something that you feel good about, right? There's still you know, this I, desire. I have this conversation with virtually every Uber driver who sure. I take a ride with, and they all have interesting stories. Yeah. But, you know, they're their own bosses. They, Of course, they complain about the company and how they get screwed and all that. But the fact is, Many of them enjoy what they're doing, they, and they say it, that they enjoy it, and they set their own hours. I think, uh, yeah, and some, I recall having uh, such an Uber driver in, in Florida who was retired. He actually had a very interesting and skilled job, but he had retired, and he felt like driving and talking to people as he drove, and um, that was... Uh, an element of enjoyment, and um, and what what are some of the businesses or the self employment activities that uh, the, the the lower income people that you were telling us about? What are they doing? You know, it's uh, a lot of it. Uh, childcare, you know, set, mm-hmm. setting up a childcare, um, baking cakes on the side not paying taxes, not meeting the right regulatory requirements and moving into the legal economy where you, um, you know, how do you price, how do you charge? But essentially you were doing the activity, but now you're moving into the legal economy where you can also, you know, file for social security. So a lot of it's around food, it's around services. It's the kind of thing that you would do uh, with your neighbors um, and, and, and your friends. It's also, um, health and wellness. Elder care. Elder care, you know, things tied around that. Trainers. Um, so. some, some trainers, I think. Uh, yes. And coaching. Is, coaching, yeah. Coaching. It is remarkable to think, I mean, you know, that to think that uh, a yoga instructor, I mean, you know, if you think 30 years ago and someone had said, well, I want to be a yoga instructor, you'd be like, <laughs> yeah, people make good careers. They uh, they they may own their own studio. They may rent space out of their own studio, but um, there are so many sort of service jobs that people can do. The one thing I've really become struck by is when people talk about jobs, it's how unimaginative they are. People come up with all kinds of things to make a living at, and it's really striking. But we don't think about them. I mean, we think about the you know the cubicle job or you know fairly standard routine right. stuff Image, and yeah. and what i'm talking these sort of jobs um you know they're they're services within a neighborhood yeah mm-hmm. this yeah, is why and- we call ourselves the free enterprise uh, <laughs> world <laughs> the freedom to uh to start a business uh i know that in my father's case uh uh, although he always wanted to be his own boss, I think being discriminated against uh, was a, a big motivator as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, or, you know, if you, if you, if you can't get a position in the regular, you know, you create your own job. 
certainly during the depression, um, creating your own job, uh, in his case meant saving enough to rent a truck and then buy a truck and then transport things and ultimately get a couple of additional trucks. And uh, so those, uh, that kind uh, of- let, let me ask you something. Let me interrupt you, Bob. Yeah, the, sorry. I think you have a, a, a book about living frugally, don't you? Yes, I do. Which is trying to sum up everything I had learned about personal finance. Uh, and, and that book did reason, reasonably well. That did. And well, you did live frugally, you told us, uh, in your first years <laughs> on merchant ships. Absolutely, yes, yeah. And, so that uh, direct experience could have, should have played into it. Yeah, and uh, that, was a, that was really a fun book to just try and you know, pull together what have I learned over the past 20 years, writing for Business Week. You know, in, I mostly did economics, but I would always do personal finance columns for them, work in the investment issue, that type of thing. And what I learned in public radio and sound money and then marketplace money. And, um, and then having uh, a little bit of history tossed in there. So it was fun. How, how uh, quickly can you write a, a book by, of that sort? So a year. That's great. What's, what's your but then, you need, but then you need some stuff on the other, you know, the, oh, yeah, that, that yeah. including the coming up with the idea, selling the idea, and then the, the back end. Right. Marketing right. of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And presumably it's material, some of which you've lived with. Yes. That's <laughs> for a right. Period that's, of time. that's the only reason you can do it. That, that, that you're ready to, you know what you want to say, kind of. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm just curious, Zvi, particularly what you think, but um, so I have this podcast called Small Change, Money Stories from the Neighborhood. And it's going into talking to people, doing an interview who live on a low and unstable income, but the goals are the same, start a business, own a home, educate your children, have some financial stability and find people in the neighborhood who have figured it out and get their story. And the thing that really strikes me about this is um, so much of personal finance is about I. You know, here's what you can do to save. And if you didn't save, you know, here's what you did wrong. And in these interviews, personal finance starts with the community. It might be the family, it might be the extended family, uh, it might be uh, the ethnic uh, community, it might be the neighborhood, but it's all about pooling resources and to accomplish goals. And it's not about I, it's all a group of people who are together who don't have much, but by pooling the resources. So Bob, you had mentioned, um, I was here, for example, in the Somali community. So eight Somalis will get together, they pool the resources. And this is before COVID. So I don't know what's happening right now. Um, so this went back like in 2019. We'll pool the resources and buy a long haul truck. And not necessarily everyone would be a driver, but I think several of them be a driver. But the, but the only way they could buy a long haul truck was to pool their resources, to pool their savings. Now you get the start of a business. And um, one of the, the, the really uh, leaders of the Somali community, unfortunately, he passed away. But 
one of the things that he said to me that has always stuck with me, he says, what is it with you Americans? What is it? You know, the first thing you want to do is buy a home. Somalis, we want to have a business. Then we buy a home. Good point. It's good, good, good point. Um, wow, that's a... So, so that's one example of uh, pooling. Do you have any other pooling examples? Well, I, I, actually, I wanted to ask you about your professional community. Is there much of a uh, network or community of people who do things like you do? Yeah. You know. But we don't. So the ones that I stay in touch with are people that I have worked with. Uh, I wouldn't say, I mean, I, there are people that I respect and we, we've met at a conference or something like that. And I know who they are and I follow their work, uh, very closely, you know, like a Liz Weston, uh, follow her work or Peter Coy, who's writing used to be a business week. And now he's writing for, for the New York times. So I follow closely what they do. We're not exchanging ideas, but there are people that I worked with at business week that I'm still in touch with people I worked with in public radio that I'm still in touch with. And we do exchange ideas and we do talk things over. And a lot of it is, supportive and it's, you know, hey, I'm looking for an agent or what do you think of this idea? And when I come up with an idea that I think, um, is this worth pursuing? You know, I'll type up a, a note and I'll send it to people and say, what do you think? And I'll get very thoughtful responses back. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah, that's, I love that aspect of work. Actually, I love that aspect of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> right. So in getting into getting getting back to uh, getting into journalism. So you took the route not through a journalism school, although you did get a graduate degree, but um, you had had real life experience and then got your graduate degree and then started just hustling. Yeah. Um, and presumably and that's changed now. Or has it? Yes and no. I mean, I got really lucky because I had some really good mentors. And um, even though they don't use the word apprenticeship, if you think about journalism, it's an apprenticeship yeah. system. It really is. And you have to learn by doing. You learn by doing, had wonderful editors. They would give you terrific feedback, not always in the nicest way, but you get really good feedback. Um, and I think uh, two things have happened. One is, um, there are more people going to journalism school, but does that really pay off when you look at the, the debt that you have to take on and you look at the salaries in journalism? And like so many professions, the middle, the middle layer has been hollowed out. And mm -hmm. I think one of where I've always been lucky is I work in organizations that still have editors. And there are a lot of organizations that have kind of almost eliminated that editor level to give you that kind of feedback you know you just kind of file your copy and as long as it doesn't have something terrible in it and as long as words they have a copy editor but not the editor that says um what is it you're trying to say here this doesn't make any sense uh you know your last and this is this is uh for most journalists this is actually true definitely true with me chris your last paragraph that's your first paragraph <laughs> you've done what you've done is you've explained to everybody how you got to the where you got to 
And that's your last paragraph. Nobody cares how you got there. Put that first. And then, you know, explain. You know, right? it's funny you should mention that. My wife and I, uh, over the last two nights, were watching uh, Lawrence of Arabia. If you remember that. Yes, I do. Spectacular. And I had forgotten this, but the opening scene is his accident on the motorcycle where he gets killed. Right, so right. you know you know the end at the beginning, <laughs> and then it starts uh, yeah, from the real beginning. Yeah, with the sun, the magnificent Yes, sun. the sunrise and, and uh, the, the sheikh, uh, Omar Sharif, comes, <laughs> comes riding on a horse and shoots the Arab that he's that he's with. Anyhow, we don't have to retell the whole story. So let, let, let's let's turn toward your sort of overview of journalism and maybe even business journalism, uh, which is, I would say, seems to be a, a distinctive subset in the sense that at least a fair amount of it is not quite bound up with everything political, although obviously political plays a role. Um, how do you see it moving forward? I mean, we now have all these outlets in a way. Well, the, yeah, there's, there's the profession and then there's uh, Chris and your goals as-, as <laughs> This is part of the profession. I mean, yes, I know, but his personal. So on the profession, you know, thinking about it, I have something of a minority view but I think that there has never been so much good journalism being done as this period of time that we're living in. There's also, and I don't know if I could, this is historically true, so much junk at the same time. But when people use the term media, I say, so you've been reading the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Financial Times, uh, The New Yorker, um, The Guardian, The Atlantic, I mean, you have some really high caliber. Reading the Wall Street Journal, some of the investigations that they have been doing about Facebook and uh, you know the elder abuse and and some of the stuff the New York Times. I mean, I think if you look for it, you can find incredible journalism, which sometimes makes mistakes, but they do correct it pretty quickly. Uh, and usually what it turns out what people are talking about is CNN and Fox News and a couple of other things when they're saying media. And so on, on that level, um, I really do worry that we live in a world where, there's the, where the money is being made is on the opinion side of the page and less and less on the journalism side of the page. And that's a longer term worry, really worry about local news and holding people accountable locally. And there it's not easy because what's happening is the Wall Street Journal is getting more powerful and stronger. The New York Times is getting stronger. I mean, these are becoming truly national uh, institutions. The Financial Times is a global institution. The Economist is a global institution. But it's and, it's, and, they've become, and they've become multimedia. Multimedia and it's great journalism and public it, radio yeah. has real competition from the New York Times right now. This is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing. And uh, a lot of the podcasts has sort of opened up all kinds of opportunities for producers and audio engineers for so long. If you want to do audio, public radio was the only place to go. Now you have all this choice. So when and I you have now, I think um, some journalists that have 
been booted for maybe being canceled a bit, uh, started their own Substack. That's right. And they have followings. They have adequate followings for them to make a living at writing. Yeah. So, but I do, you know, the cost of doing good journalism is high. And what seems to be happening is the number of institutions that can do good journalism is shrinking. And the ones that are doing it, I think are doing it really, really well. And unless they make a bad stumble, they'll probably, you know, I think the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, the Financial Times, I mean, they've got a position that they'll, they're going to continue to grow. Uh, and that makes me very optimistic. Then I look at what else is out there and it's a pretty depressing picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, let's turn to the uh, perspective of markets. Not, I don't mean financial markets particularly, but thinking about market economies and the people covering uh, economics and or at least yeah this society in a way that is affected by uh, free markets <clears throat> my impression is that um, many journalists don't have uh, really a fundamental understanding of the workings of markets and the difference between being uh, market friendly versus in in the sense of wanting markets to function properly and business friendly, meaning helping businesses. So I I worry about that. I I think there is a a lack of of understanding of the distinction. And that's right. And, you know, it comes in waves, but absolutely. And, um, I think that's a good way of thinking. I mean, you know, one of the real disservices in the 1990s, for example, which also reemerged in the later 2000s, was kind of like the business person as a hero. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not enough skepticism, not enough questioning, uh, and not actually looking at the underlying economics of what they were, of what they were doing. So I, I get think it. That's a real, that is a real- Well, uh, let me give you one counterexample about coverage. So um, I know a fair amount about the steel industry. The price of steel went from about $550 a ton to $2,000 a ton in a period of less than a year, six, eight months. I saw almost no coverage of it, despite the fact that it's a commodity that are that's used in input into all kinds of things and yeah well bob bob do you do you listen to cnbc and bloomberg and those stations no oh well that's where that gets covered and it well, does but it's, it has it, a much bigger effect than 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 just that i mean when when john kennedy called uh the steel unions and the steel companies together uh, because it was so important that they keep the inflation guidelines. Uh, this was national news. And uh, occasionally it becomes national news. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't see it that way, Bob. You're going well, let, to have. Let's hear what Chris says. Yeah, all right. Well, well the thing that uh, struck me off what you're saying is everyone used to know 
who was the head of the AFL-CIO, like George Meany, right? Yeah. All right. Who's the head of AFL-CIO now? It's, it's a woman, actually. I forgot yes, her name. exactly. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, I think that that's part of what of what's going on. I do think that the that the that's where the business press does actually they do cover the steel industry. I mean, yeah. I think yeah, uh, they the cover industry, every industry. Bloomberg does a good job of that. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't except for this term supply chain, which has become a word that everybody is using that used to be only in the business press. Now everyone says supply chain. Um, it doesn't actually bleed. The steel industry doesn't bleed out of the business press unless someone is going to a, uh, a steel industry town or they're going to look at um, the environmental costs of the steel industry. I mean, there may be another reason why someone looks at it, but not as- What about inflation? <laughs> Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is that uh, now inflation gets a lot of coverage. Right. And so, but if you use your steel example, you know, one of the things that strikes me, yes, I know it's inflation, but it also strikes me as, isn't that the price signal working? That, you know, <laughs> sure if, 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 if that, here's the price signal to the steel industry, uh, you got to deal, you know, there are real opportunities here. And Maybe you're going to invest a little bit more. Maybe it actually is worth it for you to deal with that sort of supply chain. So a lot of times, one of the things, and I, this is this is the kind of thing when I'm interviewing, I get to ask, because it's a naive question, what's the difference between inflation and a price signal? And, you know, inflation is something that we worry about because it can be sustainable, it can keep going. But a price signal says, hey, industry, opportunity here, make some money. And by the way, your prices will eventually, who, who knows, might take a long time, but it's a different phenomenon. No, I, I mean, I, I, I agree that if you, if you cite the fact, then it then suggests additional stories. Yeah. Why is this happening? Is it sustainable? What are the forces that are driving it one way or the other? See, um, one of the stories it, I think- It's, it's a be... wonderful opening. Yeah to analyze what's going on. See, one of the stories I think for you is with all the infrastructure spending that is coming down and where's the workforce? Right. And what are the, op and put it differently, what are the opportunities to uh, get good jobs for people because there is all this infrastructure spending coming through? Yeah. Where are the job openings? What training needs to be done? Um, and let's see if we can kind of change that dynamic. That sounds good. That gives us a direction for uh, <laughs> inviting, inviting some new guests. Who, if you were doing it, who would you interview next? Well, he's always, I think he's uh, Joseph Nocera. Oh, yeah. I think he'd be absolutely fascinating. He wrote a really important book, uh, uh, about inflation many years ago. Uh, and then he, you know, he's written a number of books, but we interviewed him for a, um, uh, it was after 2008, 2009 economic crisis. And, right. and he told this story about how, you know, he would, his, his parents were so mad at him. This is in the 1970s. They were so mad at him because he was borrowing all this money. And he kept yelling back at his parents. He was paying the bank back in depreciated dollars. <laughs> and, you know, he was talking about how 
you know, you think about these things and how it can change. And, you know, it, it's, I think he'd be, um, he'd yeah. be a wonderful, wonderful person to talk to. And well, he, he, he got he, in the news because of his, uh, his, uh, uh, story that led to a TV series about the, the, uh, the shrink next door. Oh, that's right. Yes. He, um, and, um, yeah, yeah, friend, a good friend of mine is a good friend of his, so we'll uh, take that up. And but I, I think you're right paths. about, I think you're right about um, uh, looking at these, the, the impending uh, job uh, short, uh, skill shortage in various fields in the role that, uh, you know, training and that sort of thing can, can help with, so. Yeah. And, and I, I we're think, working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah, because I think sometimes I feel like there's almost like too much analysis of what went wrong in the past and not enough focus on, you know, there's an opportunity here right now to sort of like change this whole story. So how do you do that? Yeah, well, that, that's, yeah, I think that would reduce the, the blame game stories that... <laughs> seem to be uh, least affecting our politics. Yeah. All right, Bob, you gonna wrap it up? Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure, Chris. And oh, uh, we're, we're, I think we're only gonna be interviewing people who have had experience on the water in ships. <laughs> <laughs> great way to see the world. It's a great way to see the world. Um, but uh, it, 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 I, I love your final comment about uh, looking at the opportunities. Uh, we're taking some opportunities uh, afforded by the technology to get to know people like you. And it's, it's been a wonderful experience. And I hope our listeners will enjoy these experiences along with us. So thank you, Chris. And, here, uh, here. And, you know, we have, a part, we have parting words which we end every interview with. It's Zai Gesund. You know what that means? Zai Gesund. It's both German and Yiddish, and it means be well. It means goodbye. Yeah, literally be well. Goodbye and good luck. <laughs> right, right. Zai Gesund. Well, thank you very much. Zai Gesund, Chris. See you <laughs> later. See you later. Bye okay, now. bye. Let's see.